0: That? <laughs> and you must also concede that this uh, mustache is growing to unbelievable luxuriance. In fact, uh, I have to concede that at a very early age, I was subliminally influenced by Doctor Fu Manchu. In fact, uh, did you ever see pictures of Fu Manchu? I mean, you know, uh, when those stories were appearing, you know, long, thin. Of course, the, the true Fu Manchu mustache consists of long, thin hairs that hang down almost to your your breastbone, you know, the long, draping. But the thing about Fu Manchu that nobody talks about... Well, bring it up there, please. We'll talk about things about Fu Manchu that nobody talks about. George, <laughs> you, you just can't beat it. There's, there's the never-ending tapestry of life on this program, the never-ending tapestry of life. Well, The thing they never mention about Fu Manchu is not his mustache. Everybody talks about that. Uh, the thing they don't talk about, though, is there were two outstanding characteristics that Dr. Fu Manchu had, uh, other than the fact, of course, he had a massive intellect that was incredible in its, uh, in its uh, ramifications and its total concept of evil. Uh, he, he, uh, he applied his massive intellect to evil purposes. In fact, there was a great deal of, of thought that uh, Fu Manchu was, in fact, an agent of the devil. If not, the devil himself... Uh, He had a great intellect, fantastic imagination. And what's more important, he applied it. Now, many of us, you know, lay around underneath the radiators of the life that we live and uh, think great thoughts, but we do nothing about it. Fu Manchu worked at it. Uh, And furthermore, he had some interesting physical characteristics. Al, did you ever read a Fu Manchu story? All right, now, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, almost every no no I don't know why I have to do this but uh, I'm, you see the, the the thirst for human knowledge consumes me at times and uh, while other people in my in my uh, undergraduate work uh, in the university were, were hard at work studying the ironic ramifications of the novels of Jane Austen uh, they were they were <laughs> they were dealing uh, with a... with the with the uh, the, uh, the essays of, of Montaigne? Uh, they were working hard on the uh, on the implied uh, uh, apocalyptic vision of Rambo. Uh, I personally applied myself with enormous diligence in studying uh, the works of Sax Romer, who, by the way, is the creator or was the creator of Doctor Fu Manchu. I wonder how many of you knew that. And uh, incidentally, there is one very famous picture of, of Sax Romer. Um, in fact, Sax Romer was an English writer, of course. But there was one p- famous picture of Sax where he, w- on the back of one of his, his books, you know, the dust jacket photo, where he was dressed in the garbs of Dr. Fu Manchu. And he had a long ivory cigarette holder. He looked a-fate. He looked uh, uh, evil. And uh, it was kind of a strange picture, you know. It looked like a, <laughs> a curious picture. He had a long robe with the high collar, Mandarin collar and all. But uh, the thing that was important to remember about Dr. Fu Manchu, he had he had curious physical attributes among them. Uh, he had the eyes. What, 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 were, what were important about his eyes? No, 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 Piercing. Why half the cab drivers I know got piercing eyes? (laughs) He did not. He had piercing eyes, of course, but his eyes had a particularly fascinating, uh, almost almost. Well, it it was it was an inhuman quality. What was it? Well, I'll tell you what it was. I mean, again, I'm faced with lesser intellects, and once again, I'm faced with the fact that I do have. I walk alone, largely in my great knowledge of the trivia of the world, I have to concede that, but uh, this was not necessarily trivial, you see. It was an important characteristic of Dr. Manchu and, in fact, was often used to uh, augment the ideas that C. Nayland Smith had that Dr. Fu Manchu was not human at all. He was another breed. He was, he was another level of, of, uh, of uh, creativity, another creature, in fact. What was it? Well, I'll tell you what it was. Uh, Have you ever observed the eyes of the snake? Do you know that the snake's eyes, they do not have lids such as you and I have. They have a particular type of eye that films over. They have a film that goes over the eye. This was a characteristic of Dr. Fu Manchu. And the pupil of the eye, instead of being round as the pupil of your eye is, he had thin, vertical slits, much as the sort of eye one sees in the reptilian body. Now, this this is going to... That would stop you, even on the subway. You're used to seeing insane sights on the subway. Somebody got on the subway with eyes like that, you'd look. But he had another characteristic, curious characteristic. His skin was, was... was not the type of skin that you and I have, you know, ordinary skin. His skin appeared to be aged parchment. It uh, it appeared, he seemed totally ageless. In fact, uh, uh, there was one passage where where C. Nalen Smith, observing Fu Manchu under a brilliant white light, which he often affected in his inner chambers, said, My God! The man appears to be thousands of years old, yet he appears to be ageless. Well, this uh, this is an also an interesting characteristic. And one other thing, he had he had enormously long curling fingernails, which of course were the mark of the of the Mandarin uh, caste from which he came. Uh, meaning that long fingernails meant that he would, had never indulged in physical labor. Have no point. Uh, do his hands touch such things as, as uh, tools? Or <laughs> so so uh, now, th- now, these are all part of of uh, of the uh, you know of the of the literary background in which I work, and you can see that the mustache I have affected is a little bit influenced by Doctor Muench, although it, it does it's not worn with the flare. Uh, you must have the the thin parchment-faced aquiline look of a reptile about to strike to get the perfect the perfect feeling for this mustache. Uh, it, uh, not many can wear it. Uh, incidentally, uh, tonight, uh, we're, we're going to take this opportunity uh, to salute one of our, our uh, citizens who has risen above the ordinary call of duty, among the ordinary muck and mile of 20th century life, and uh, curiously enough, it, it is a bird. Uh, we are going to salute a bird named Charles, known familiarly to his friends as Charlie. Uh, who was, uh, well, I, I, I have to, I read the piece to you. It's, uh, it's uh, uh, symbolically enough from Philadelphia. We all know of the boo-bird proclivities of the Philadelphians, right? But only in Philadelphia is the boo a major art form, and youngsters are taught from very earliest infancy on how to get distance and variety and uh, a piercing quality to their boos. B-O-O, boo. And uh, the Philadelphian stands alone, uh, and yet uh, it's interesting enough. Even the animal life in the Philadelphia area is and has been affected by this. We have a note from one of the Philadelphia papers, one of my favorite humor papers, the Bulletin of Philadelphia, a great organ of, of unconscious humor, and it says police in the Middle Middletown Township Bucks County, which is just outside of Philadelphia, if you know the area there. Yesterday morning received a report that a large, talking blackbird was terrorizing children on their way to school in Levittown. Well, it's not easy to terrorize a child on his way to school out of Levittown. Uh, this is a, a community conceived in the, in the spirit of pure Kafka from the start. But uh, nevertheless, you notice Shepard's waspish wit tonight does not stop. Uh, <laughs> who's Kafka? Well, that'll be your homework for tonight. Uh, nevertheless, it uh, sounds like he plays for the Detroit Lions, doesn't it? But, uh, you know, uh, by a linebacker, perhaps. But uh, nevertheless, uh, we uh, we must it, point out that this bird was uh, walking around on the sidewalks outside of Levittown. And, uh, and whenever he was approached, uh, what made this bird interesting, when he was approached, uh, he would holler one thing, which I think is kind of interesting. It's a phrase not used often by Americans. Unless you happen to be from Philadelphia. When approached, he would say the following, Ah! Bug off! I repeat, for those of you who didn't quite get that, not uh, uh, capable of understanding how birds talk, he would, Ah! ah! And then they would approach him, and then he would say clearly in a distinct voice, Watch out, we're ready to go here. Ah! Bug off! Bug off! <laughs> so, Charlie, uh, Philadelphian bird, uh, already is. Uh, is uh, displaying uh, a marked animosity to his environment by yelling bug off to anybody that shows up if you didn't get what he was saying (laughs) not everybody you see the reason I can understand how birds talk is because uh, I grew up uh, in very close proximity to a talking crow uh, who uh, lived on top of a garage on top of Stanford's garage about four garages away from our garage and he would sit on the top of the garage and just, you know, talk to the neighborhood occasionally. And uh, what he used to say, albeit I must say his, his, uh, his, uh, his, uh, his uh, power to communicate, was strong, which incidentally is often the case of those of limited vocabulary. He told you what he meant. Now, uh, he didn't do it with subtlety and grace, but he did it with great effectiveness. And this uh, crow who was named John... I used to just sit up on top of Stanford's garage, and once in a while he would just holler, "Damn!" So he hollered, <laughs> We're it up there, large." <laughs> he was big, man. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, there's a kid has taken this uh, bird in tow. Says the bird followed me home, so he wants to keep it as a pet. In case you're curious, what kind of a bird it is? It looks like a crow and they I've seen crows before. And I don't know whether you know anything about crows, but crows can be uh, the most maddening of birds. And uh, before we go into that, uh, uh, you know, they, they speckle, first of all, they speckle the landscape with droppings of one kind or another, which uh, reminds me, do you have time in there for a commercial? Good. Hit the button, please, Al. It's a misty night. Walking along Cedar Street, hand in hand, are Andy and Betsy, Know what Andy's doing besides being nervous about how he can kiss Betsy goodnight? <laughs> He's sneaking a lifesaver. And not even Betsy will know he snuck it until he kisses her. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Lemon, got another lifesaver? Girls are why boys should always carry plenty of lifesavers. Life Savers is a registered trademark. Yes, indeed. Let's see. We have with us uh, the House of Chan. And uh, for those of you out there who are scouting around looking for a good Chinese... And you know, I have to agree with uh, Barry about something he said the other night, Fiber. Yeah, he, he, he said that uh, he's never seen a Chinese restaurant that he didn't like. Well, there is some truth to that. I mean, if you like Chinese food, you know, this has got a certain characteristic. I, I can't go that far. <laughs> I have been in a couple of Chinese restaurants that were not as good as other Chinese restaurants, but let's put it this way. Bad Chinese restaurants are quite often better than mediocre restaurants of various other nationalities. Do you buy that? Uh, okay. But if you're looking for a good Chinese restaurant, really a really recognizably good one, I would suggest, uh, down. But when I say recognizably, this one's been in business for 35 years, and incidentally, in one of the toughest areas of New York as far as uh, uh, cuisine is concerned. In other words, there's a lot of competition where they are. And uh, a lot of people can choose and pick in that area. It's 52nd Street and 7th Avenue. <laughs> That's in the middle of everything. And these guys have been big for 35 years. It's fine Chinese food and an excellent bar. And uh, one, one very important thing about it, many times you go to a, an Oriental restaurant and you are able to wait a long time for your food. Uh, this has happened to me. But they have a special thing there. If you come in, you tell them you've got to make a show, you know. You're going to, uh, you know, the uh, premiere of a new porny or something like that. You you have to get there fast. You don't want to miss anything. So uh, you just tell them you got to make a show. And, uh, and they'll, they'll whip the stuff on you in, in quick order. This is the House of Chan, 52nd Street and 7th Avenue. Okay? You know uh uh, speaking of uh, yeah, this is W R New York. Now, oh, by the way, W R is an old Chinese word. In case you're interested, you know warmain. You you know about this. You know what it means, don't you? You know what it means in Chinese. It means soft and gooey, which kind of adequately, uh, you know, it's uh, soft and gooey. Yeah, warmain means soft noodles. Main meaning noodles. Warmain, meaning soft and gooey noodles. I mean, you know, it's just a coincidence. I didn't uh, uh, <laughs> could have meant mean rotten noodles, but it doesn't. It means <laughs> soft and gooey noodles. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I would like to uh, point out though that this dog, uh, you know, this this dog that uh, that uh, brought this little note here. We have a dog that makes occasional deliveries on the twentieth floor uh, that carries the stuff in his mouth and uh, brought this stuff up here, made a rotten remark about the bird, Charlie, and left, which, uh, you know, there's a lot of intramural strife these days. You notice that every group is trying to hang on to its own, and uh, more than that, they won't give up its uh, in the identity for the identity of the common good, right? You've noticed this. Well, this is true of, uh, of almost everybody. It's one way or another. And I, and I, this clipping on the bulletin, you know, it comes out. I'm looking at this thing about the bird, see? And I often find that, that, that when my spies send me clippings, the stuff that they think is great is really the secondary stuff. On the backside of the clipping is often the best stuff, which, uh, you know, they'll exit out, like, don't look at this. And I tell you, well, here's, here's what was exited out. That, uh, I don't know whether you follow Andy Cap or not much. Do you? Well, uh, Andy Kapp, uh, Andy Cap often touches upon the human condition. Which is certainly nothing that uh, that Snoopy does. Snoopy touches on something else, but certainly ain't the human condition, and certainly not the condition of beagles either. But uh, nevertheless, handicap uh, does deal with the human condition, <laughs> and and in ways you you rarely see dealt with in comic strips. For example, in comic strips, uh, generally when people have arguments, they're very they're very uh, uh, you know, the blondie type thing. There, there's nothing but funniness involved. It's never bitterness, right? There's uh, never bitterness enters into comic strips. But Andy Capp, now here for here's a typical strip. It shows his wife. Well, what's his wife's name? I'll give you a trivia question. What's his, Andy's wife's name? Well, see, there again, I'm faced with the, the blank wall of ignorance. Uh... For those of you who are lesser literate than I am, I will have to say it is Flo. His wife's name is Flo. What's the name of her girlfriend? You don't know that either. All right. Uh, you do know Andy's name is Andy. You, you've, that's penetrated your skull, right? But uh, do you know what his name is a play on? It's, his name is Andy Capp. What is that a play on? You don't see the meaning of that. Well, of course, you realize he's a horse player. And he's also Cockney. So when you'd say, if you were a Cockney, how would you say the word handicap? You'd say Andy, you'd say Andy Cop, right? Well, all right, his name is thus Andy Cap. So, or, or Andy Cap, if you prefer it that way. Sam, you're getting a little literate here about the comic strips, but uh, uh, let's say even more than that, I'm getting a little uh, a little discursive on the subject of comic strips but uh, nevertheless andy cap does occasionally touch on the human condition particularly the relationship of man and woman which uh, as we all know is a highly complex uh, interpersonal relationship by the way i heard a fantastic thing the other day i'm walking along on Greenwich avenue say down the village and you hear these you hear these lines just come winging out at you <laughs> that uh, that could that could come right out of a uh, out of a Jules Pfeiffer cartoon, one of the better cartoons by Pfeiffer. and here's this chick walking ahead of me saying she's she's got granny glasses the whole bit, you know the long uh, the long fur coat and the whole bit you know with the seventeen inch uh, soles on her shoes and all she's hobbling along on these shoes and uh, she's talking to uh, this male she was with who was about six feet seven, weighed about eighty two pounds had a long white coat with white fur on the bottom, you know, beads hanging down, great mop of hair, you know, the whole bit, granny glasses and all. And she said the following. She said, You know what you're going to have to do? And he didn't answer. He continued to plod along, looking glum. She said, You're going to have to expand the creative aspect of your interpersonal relationships. Well, that's pure Pfeiffer. Uh... Expand the creative aspect of your interpersonal relationships. Now that's pure new school, uh, right, <laughs> right down the line. <laughs> Which is to say, it doesn't have much to do with reality, but it makes great conversation. It makes fantastic uh, uh, captions for cartoons. And here she just said it, you know, right in front of, uh, right in front of the H Street Bookstore, symbolically, and they just laid it out there, saying. And I figured you know, it was some kind of, a, you know, I figured it was some kind of a, a, an improv uh, acting group out working out on the sidewalk, you know to get a little uh, work in among the people, but no, no, he looked at her you know, with this, this, this look of, uh, of uh, you know, the sad look of a beagle who has just been turned off the Alpo. and uh, you know he was cut to the quick. and he said to her, the following, he says, "What do you mean? My relationships are very creative. And they walked along for another two or three yards, and I'm listening, you know, she's saying nothing, he's saying nothing. And finally she says, well, if you call your interpersonal relationships creative, I certainly would like to know what Sally's are. <laughs> well, I'd like to know, you know, I can just see Sally, her interpersonal relationships are so creative. I can see her, you know, the crowd gathering at her house every day and wearing paper hats and blowing horns. And uh, so, so he walked along again another twenty feet. See, and I'm behind. By this time, I'm deeply drawn into this, this, uh, this drama that's going on on A Street. See, and uh, they both, by the way, both of them had plastic shopping bags marked Capizio. So uh, you know, you got the whole, you got the whole thing going. See, so he, he finally sits there and he says, "Well, if you call Sally's relationships creative." If you call her relationships interpersonal, creative, I don't want to have anything to do with that sort of thing. Well, at that point they turned left, <laughs> and I lost them. <laughs> well, now you know this uh, this kind of this this uh, this kind of give and take, while not essentially communication, is at least a, 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 a classical form. It's almost a, a conversational pas de deux. It's a far more symbolic than real, uh, and and that uh, I suppose is the is the final essence of what is being attempted. But now, what did what did Andy do? You see, what's what's this got to do with Andy Cap? Well, the first picture shows Flo. See, Andy is walking in very fast from the front door, and he's going up the stairs. See, and 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 he walks right by Flo. Obviously, says nothing to her. He just walks by and up. And she's hollering. She's got her hair up in curlers, and she's hollering up the stairs. And she says, "Look, even servants get spoken. Even servants get spoken to. Talk to me. Talk to me." Dead silence. Now she's in front of the door upstairs, where obviously he's in the bedroom, and she's picking up his clothes. By the way, which have been scattered along the. Staircase and up to the top of the stairs where he's been taking his clothes off as he's coming in. See, and she's picking him up. She says, "Well," dead silence. Now they're both in the sack there. Andy is laying there and he's still got his cap on, and uh, (laughs) he has a checkered cap on all the time. And he's 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 going to sleep or you know he's laying there all burrowed in, and she's sitting next to him, wearing her, uh, wearing her hair up in curlers. She's got a robe on. And now Andy finally says the only thing he's going to say to her this night. He says, a very unusual thing happened to me in the pub tonight. Nothing. <laughs> End of the evening. <laughs> and she's looking bugged. Well, now, you see, this is a condition which is quite common among the lesser creative aspects of the interpersonal relationships, particularly between the two sexes of the species. We, of course, are excluding other sexes, which will be taken up later on in our discussion. However, uh, the, the fact that, that silence often settles down, a complete, uh, a complete wall of, of uh, impenetrable silence and blankness settles down between two human beings at a certain point in their relationship. Do you agree with this, Al? Occasionally broken by... Uh, outburst of, of uh, oratorical gunfire. But, uh, <laughs> you know, when one will try a probing action <laughs> and then get blasted and shot down and retreat again to silence. But I had an experience one time. You know, it, you learn about these things gradually in life. You know, you don't learn these things in, in, in sociology classes, believe me. Uh, in fact, you don't learn damn much in sociology classes, except a lot of great terms. Uh, you, yeah, you, lot of, you learn a lot of great conversational gambits, but the, whether it deals much with the way people are or not is, is certainly highly problematical. But you know, you can read—it's just like anything else. You can you can read all the books you want on sharks, but getting eaten by a shark is another thing entirely. Uh, <laughs> very, very different thing. I I uh, and yet a lot of people's lives are are all this way. They're all vicarious, You know, they they. They can tell you all about Indians. They've never seen one. Uh, they they uh, yeah. They know all about they know all about sharks. They've never seen one of those either. Uh, they can tell you all about storms at sea because they've read everything in Comrade, you know, and and they've read everything uh, that's ever been written by Melville on the subject. But uh, it's just n- nothing to do with the reality. The reality is another ball game entirely. So you learn these things only by being there, ultimately, and then after that point, you don't say much. Uh, <laughs> because once you have run afoul of reality, there isn't much to say, because what you say, you know, never really approximates the the truth of it, never way, uh, and no, no, uh, it just maybe touches on the edges of it, but never quite deals with the core. In fact, I remember I, I, this friend of mine says, "All right, I'll tell you how I learned about this aspect of life." You know, the 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 the, uh, the, the non-creative interpersonal relationships. This friend of mine. <laughs> guy, you know, you know, very jovial guy, you know, he's a funny son of a gun, you know. He's a, a buddy of mine see, that I knew. We've been friends for a long time. And uh, one day, he came home and uh, came back to the, to, I, this was in, in college, incidentally. I was going to school at the time and uh, still dewy-eyed, uh, brightened, uh, you know, I figured that the uh, that anything can be done if you if you worked hard enough at it. You know, this is a period you go through in your life where you think that anything, any problem can be solved if we all concentrate on it. Uh, this is actually believed. In other words, the, the concept of the insoluble problem is anathema. <laughs> it bugs you. The idea that some problems can't be solved by anything, this this really is, is very discouraging. And you see it often today. You hear people say, uh, well, if we can land people on the moon, how come we can't do away with the race problems? Oh, man. I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's roughly like saying, uh, you know, if we can kill the ladybugs that are hanging around the front yard, why can't we get rid of bubonic plague? Two different things <laughs> of a totally different magnitude. Uh, a friend of mine, as a matter of fact, is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a well-known research medical doctor. He, he does nothing but research. In fact, at Hahnemann Hospital in Philadelphia. And he says one of the things that really makes him laugh is when he hears, you know, otherwise well-informed uh, well-informed uh, a serious uh, uh, commentators say something and now the science editor reports. And he says, well, uh, today's editorial consists of a matter of values. This corner can see no reason why a nation with the fantastic economic and scientific capabilities as these United States which have been able to land a man on the moon is unable to solve the problem of the simple cold. It is a matter of priority. And that's tonight's editorial. Good night. Well, my friend says the simple cold is probably one of the most complex diseases known to man. Did you know that, Al? The cold <laughs> solving Putting a guy on the moon is like uh, is like uh, building a triangle with children's blocks, you know, one on top of the other, compared uh, to, let us say, uh, uh, <laughs> let us say, uh, mastering quantum mechanics by a chimpanzee. He says the common cold is probably one of the most enigmatic of man's afflictions. Well, but that's, you know... Ignorance will always lead you to believe things are that simple. And, uh, and to be able to, to, to parallel solving racial problems with landing people on the moon is to either, either you don't know anything about landing people on the moon or you don't know anything about race problems. Quite probably both. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you're faced with this kind of insanity all the time. Otherwise, serious people will appear on the... And they always get an applause. This is always going to get you applause. You appear in the Dick Cavett show, see. And uh, Cabot says, uh, and uh, what other, uh, what other uh, great profound ideas do you have, Jane? At which point uh, whoever is being spoken to will say, well, uh, to show you how insane the values of modern men are, we can put people on the moon, but at no point have we been able to solve uh, the comparatively simple problem of poverty. And then, of course, there's a great roar of applause. Because to the average doc, this is a... <laughs> this is, obviously, a... Uh, a uh, you see, one can be solved by the application of money. In other words, uh, to, to carry it a little further, one problem is soluble by money. In other words, you can, if you spend enough money, you can solve the problem of putting a guy on Mars. Because it primarily takes technological research. Technological research. And technological hardware to put a guy on Mars, but no matter how much money you spend, the problems that are very subtle problems of the human mind are insoluble. To the pro- to, money can't do it. Uh, <laughs> in other words, you could sell, you, you could spend 12 billion dollars tomorrow to make people believe in the Ten Commandments. Would that make them believe in it? No way. Uh, and so the idea being that if, you, that, that, that if you can spend money in one aspect of life and solve the problem, why can't you spend money? say, take that money away that we're spending on uh, sending people to the moon and apply it to the problems of race relationships. And uh, oh, you know, I mean that's, uh, <laughs> uh, and I'm not against putting money in the race problem. I'm just saying that don't don't think for a minute that's going to solve it. No way. It has something else to do. Uh, this uh, a thing of the human spirit. But be that as it may, uh, I, 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 you, you learn these things very gradually. So this friend of mine comes home, see, one day from from a weekend, he's gone, and uh, he says, uh, "You know, you know what happened to me? And We're both working at this radio station at night. It was a TV radio combined operation. See, so we would run back and forth. I'm doing TV for a while. He's doing radio back and you know that kind of deal in the booth and all. So, uh, oh, we're both going to school, and he comes back. On a Monday, after this uh, after this weekend, see, and uh, he's look, he looks kind of kind of uh, like he's got a great uh, truth to impart, finally I said, what's eating you, George? And what, you know, he said, well, I might as well tell you. I said, what, George? I said, well, you know what I did this weekend? Well, you know, that's a rhetorical question. So I, I, I often uh, irritate people by taking a rhetorical question literally. I said, uh, yeah, well, let me, th- let me guess. Uh... You uh, took a walk to Euclid, Ohio, and stopped at Howard Johnson on the way, uh, the one out there on Route 12, right? He says, nope. Guess again. I said, oh, I know what you did. Uh, you went down to, uh, what's his name, uh, uh, Dan Prufrock, and you helped him grind the valves on a Chevy, right? He said, nope, wrong. I said, well, what the hell did you do? I hate people do this, you know. I said, what did you do? Are you going to tell me or not, you know? He said, all right, I'll tell you. I got married. Oh, what a bomb. I said, you got what? He says you got married. He said, "Oh yeah, I got married. So I said, I said who the hell did you marry? Eh, girl I knew. I said, I know that. Come on, you know. Well, girl I've known, you know, I knew this girl for a while, and, and uh, we've been kind of talking about it. I never mentioned anything about it because it never got serious, you know, but... Uh, Last couple of weeks, we've been talking about it. I so said, what the hell? I figured, uh, what can you lose? You got married. One of the great, one of the great philosophical errors of mankind. What can I lose? How many times have you heard this said? What can I lose? You can lose the world. <laughs> you can lose everything. But anyway, he says, what can I lose? And so me and Peggy got married. I said, you married Peggy? He says, yep. I had met this Peggy a couple of times. I kind of liked it. It's all right. And so uh, I said, gee, that's great, George. Yeah, yep, yep. We're married now. So a couple of weeks go by, and uh, George uh, keeps coming in, and uh, he looks normal. You know, he looks fine. We go out uh, to have our blimpy sandwich uh, after work all the time, and nothing, uh, nothing's changed. And so about a month and a half go by, and one day, George says the following to me. He says, hey, Shep, he said, uh, how'd you like to come over to the house for dinner? Well, now this, uh, you know, it's a pure married remark. Uh, a guy that is not married doesn't, doesn't say that, right, Al? <laughs> and so he says, how would you like to come over to the house for dinner? And I said, well, gee, sure, uh, George, you know, uh, yeah. Cause it's a kind of strange situation. You know, I, was, I couldn't quite relate to the idea that George is now married. And uh, she's been married now about two months, roughly. So I said, well, sure, fine, George, I'd like to. He said, well, yeah, you know, uh, Peggy and I got the new apartment, and uh, it's out there on the Vine Street, and uh, we'd like to have you up. Uh, how about uh, this, this this Sunday, huh? So I said, sure, I'm only working till noon, Sunday. So uh, I'll be done How about uh, what time does uh, she want to have dinner? So he says, oh, make it 1.30, 2 o'clock. You know, after work, you get off work, come on up, we'll have dinner. We'll have lunch, you know, dinner, and we'll sit around and, the, you know so I said okay George so uh, it's now about Wednesday I figured uh, you know everything's cool so about uh, Friday I asked George again I said hey George is that still on for uh, for this uh, this Sunday and, oh yeah 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 come on out uh, we're, we're going to have dinner you know so I get you know innocently I get uh, I get the kind of dressed up for Sunday you know I figured I'm going to George and Peggy's house and, and uh, they got this new apartment and and so uh, I take my old car out. My, old, I had this old Ford that I was driving around at the time, and, and uh, I, I, I took the uh, vacuum cleaner and sweeped it out and jazz like that. And so I drove up Vine Street. I got off work. You know, it's a nice sunny day, beautiful day. The sun is shining, and it's a, it's a you know crisp, beautiful uh, uh, winter, uh, beautiful day, a little snow on the trees. And so we drive up. I drive up Vine Street, and here's here's the the building which I had been driving past like a hundred years uh, driving down Vine Street, but now it's an official building. See, this is where George and Peggy live, and, and it's an apartment house. It's got about you know like thirty or forty apartments, one of these brick apartments. So I walk into the door there, and there on the bell there is their name, Mister and Mrs., See, and very official. They you know so so I ring the I hit the button, you know, and I stand around and wait, and finally after a long pause. Uh, the door goes, ah, uh, and it stops. Well, I didn't get to it quick enough. You know, how many times does this happen? You know, you grab it. So I ring the buzzer again. <laughs> so, yeah, I go, ah, uh, and then it goes, ah, uh, and I grab it real fast, and I swing it open, and so I go up. It was one of these apartment houses when the minute you open the door down in the bottom, when you walk into the the first place, you know, it's got these uh, sort of dark red bricks, like tile floor, and it's kind of dark. You know, certain apartments are dark, uh, with dark wood and stuff, and it's got a little narrow staircase going up, and I can smell like 20,000 meals being cooked. Uh, you know, <laughs> just that, that rich, humus smell, you know, like a, like some kind of a, a gustatorial compost heap. Uh, yeah, well, you know what I mean, old cabbage and the new hamburger and all that stuff. So, so I walk into this place, and, and they were up on the fourth floor, and they had this little tiny elevator, so I pressed the elevator, and I can hear chains clanking, kong kong bong, it's coming down. Well, now I might point out something that uh, should be pointed out. That prior to this, George, uh, George uh, was one of my uh, very close friend. But George was like the epitome of the swinging bachelor. George had this basement apartment, a pad, really. Which he had hacked out of the basement of some house, just an old Victorian house. He rented the basement, and he had all kinds of posters and jazz, and uh, you know the whole bit. You know, he had the wine bottles uh, half filled with wine all over the place, and the record uh, his record player was scattered all over the floor in components, you know, hooked together with wires, and at the records under the daybed, and we had a big bearskin rug which he slept under. You know, the, you know, the whole bit. See, well, this is a very different scene. And uh, I can hear kids crying off in a distance someplace, and and so I get into the elevator. The elevator stops, and it's the door creaks open, and I get into it. And I it was one of these kinds with the with the with the door, you know, that you have to pull back like a folding door, and I slam it, and it clanks and it creaks upward. And I look down on the floor, and there's a, you know, just a kind of a, a couple of cigarette butts on the floor. And I say, so we're creeping up this this. This elevator just clanking up to the fourth floor. I finally get to the fourth floor, and I creak the door open, and I push the thing out, and I go out into the hallway. Well, now, it was one of these apartments that has a narrow—that that is the apartment house. One of these narrow, like a like a narrow passageway, really, a, a old brick apartment, and, and there were like 30 doors, all gray steel. <laughs> you know, one after the other, with little tiny faded gold numbers written on the side: 4G, 4D. 4A, and uh, so I walk along, and they—he was living in 4E. So I go down to 4E, see, and I—I I, uh, press the button. There's a little little uh, pearl-type button on there, and I press it, and I can hear, off in the distance, this really nasty doorbell. that goes, Eah! you know, it just sort of, Eah! and it would stick. Eah! Well, I hear a little mumbling in there, and a little kind of a kind of a rustling sound. And finally, the door opens, and there's George. I said, "Hi, George. I'm here." <laughs> And he said, to him, yeah, come on in, come on in. So I walk in, and it's it's a totally different kind of a scene than George had been living in, I might point out right for starters. To begin with, there were a lot of doilies around. Now, uh, uh, some people have a taste for doilies, others don't. Now, I'm personally neutral on doilies. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I tend to be anti-doily, and I don't like to have my biases show like this, but I tend to be anti-doily, but I fight it. Uh, I try to suppress my natural anti doily tendencies. There are other people who are just actively anti doily. My kid brother, for example, he hates doilies so much that that he'll go into a place and he'll pull the doilies right off the chairs. He just pulls them off and sticks them down underneath the cushion and sits there. He doesn't like to have a doily behind him. And I said to him one time, I said, Randy, how come you don't like doilies so much? You know, I could take them or leave them alone. He says, well, I always feel like there's a spider web behind my head and there's a spider in the middle of it. (laughs) <laughs> you know, well that's another kind of paranoia. So I, I walk into the house there, and it's very neat. The house is very neat. it's, got, it's a furnished apartment, overstuffed furniture, big fat overstuffed, and uh, you could, yeah, uh, hot. It was very warm in this apartment, which incidentally was a very different different thing from George's apartment. That's why he needed a bearskin rug to sleep in. George's apartment was always winter and summer, roughly uh, three degrees above freezing. <laughs> it was always cold. And he lived that way. So I sit down after talking to George a little bit. He talked like just like the other time. He's normal, you know. And uh, he sits, sits down at the table. He says, Well, we're how about having dinner? You ought, you ought to be hungry. You've been working. Did you have breakfast this morning? I said, No, I saved. You know, I didn't want to eat. So, I'll, you know, I figured I'd uh, really lay it in here. So he said, Well, come on, sit down. And I hear a little banging around out in the kitchen, and out comes this Peggy. She's got her hair up in blue barrels. And uh, she's wearing this uh, bathrobe. She says nothing. She puts down a meatloaf in front of us or something. George says, well, let's dig in. which point Peggy comes in and sits down and starts to read the paper. George and I eat. Peggy says nothing. George says nothing to Peggy. This went on for about an hour. I ate the meatloaf and the mashed potatoes. And that is... Had a little uh, after-dinner brandy. George says, he always lived high. Finally, I had to say it. See, Peggy gets up and walks out of the room. I says, hey, George, is something wrong? He says, no, no. I said, you and Peggy I haven't said anything to each other for like an hour and a half. We so oh, we we never talk. We talked. We, 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 we haven't talked since about uh, oh about two weeks ago. We just don't talk anymore. I said, you don't talk anymore? He said, No. Just don't talk. I got nothing to say to her. She comes back into the room. I said, that was good meatloaf, Peggy. She said, yes, thank you very much. Very pleasant. But, uh, she said, would you tell him that I would appreciate it if he would go down to the store and get some ice cream? Would you tell him? I turned to George and says, George, uh, Peggy would like you to get some ice cream. He said, would you tell her? that okay, I'll go down. Does she want chocolate? Ask her that. I just never spoke they never spoke again as far as I know. Which could be a perfect way to solve the problem, you know? Uh, (laughs) This is W.O.R.